Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. This week's guests, Brian and Troy, used to be members and leaders in Pentecostal megachurches in Australia. Troy, a 21-year-old member of the Assemblies of God, the precursor to the Hillsong Church, was drawn in by Revival Centers International, now known as the Revival Centers Church. Troy was on the path to becoming a minister before, quote, years of questions, inconsistencies, and manipulation, end quote, overwhelmed him, leading to him abandoning his faith. Brian became involved with the Christian City Church's denomination before being recruited by the Assemblies of God. Brian and Troy's podcast, I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, focuses on the pair's religious experiences along with their guests, including me. So, if you enjoy our conversation today, make sure to tune in for my appearance on their show, which airs tomorrow, Thursday, June 9th. You can find the link in the show notes of this episode. Here's my conversation with Brian and Troy. I am very happy to have Troy and Brian with me today. It is really wonderful to be able to meet new people, uh, new people to me, although I know that they already have a presence and a following. And I think also because their stories have resonated so much with so many people. And so I am very happy to be able to meet both of you. And I'd love you to take a moment to introduce yourselves. Beautiful. Thanks, Rachel. Well, I'm I'm the Brian part of the Brian and Troy of the I was a teenage fundamentalist podcast. So who we are is, um, you know, Troy and I have known each other over 30 years. We share an experience, I guess. And this is what led us to start the podcast of, for those listeners who have listened to our podcast, we had different steps in our journeys. We definitely had different experiences, but I guess the foundation of that was the same thing. And that was, we're involved in fundamentalist Pentecostal churches in Australia that really are high control groups and we found them to be quite damaging and dangerous, certainly when we were there and during our experience. And I'm sure that's something that continues now. But Troy, I might hand over to you. Yeah, I think the only thing I'd add is that um, the churches that we were involved in were proto mega churches, really. I mean, they are mega churches today. They started off as the Assemblies of God in Australia. And then they became, they, they rebranded themselves as the Australian Christian Churches. And also there was a breakaway called Hillsong. And Hillsong is probably the one that most of your listeners would know. And so Hillsong, whilst didn't exist when we were there, the main players that are there, the, the people that are running it today were all part of our journey. So we knew them before they were who they are today kind of thing. So in that sense, we like to sort of distinguish, no, we were never in Hillsong, but in a lot of ways, we were totally in Hillsong. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Just called something else. You know, it's interesting. That happens a lot where people will ask me if I've heard of a particular group and I'll ask them to describe it to me and maybe some of the players. So I know if it is the same group and often it's just reformatted or retitled and it's the same thing. But sometimes when there have been exposés or lawsuits where there's been any kind of negative focus potentially on a group 
and then it has a recognizable name. It switches names. And so that's why it's always good to not just assume you haven't heard of it and not just assume it's not the same thing. I'm curious about your experiences and also what led you into wanting to do this work and also what was part of your healing process? Because that's so much of the reason that people listen to the indoctrination podcast, the the therefore, you know, I had this experience, therefore I needed the following things, or this is what I was dealing with afterwards. So tell me a little bit about your experiences and how long you were involved in so your takeaways from, from that and then what you needed in order to get past it. I came into the Pentecostal church scene when I was around about 17. For me, I was always a, you know, a spiritual type person. You know, I grew up in a fairly, fairly curious household. We never shied away from spiritual type things. Certainly not a traditional God lens on anything. None of us went to church. Well, certainly I didn't. My younger siblings did years before me. So for me, you know, I, I already had that basis for me to come into the church, I think. And it was quite a messy spiritual map that I had in my life. So I think when I came across uh, Pentecostal churches through my brothers, my brothers introduced me to it. For me, it, it sort of solved a little bit of the puzzle and it gave me a pre-packaged way of, I guess, adapting or adopting something that helped me see uh, how I could structure a bit of a spiritual framework for my life. Obviously, at that time at 17, that's not what I was thinking. But certainly in hindsight, when I look back at it, that's certainly what it offered. But also one thing that Pentecostal churches are very, very good at is make it enjoyable, high energy, fun. And when you're a young person and you want that connectedness and it's a pre-packaged deal, really, I mean, you've got lots of other young people there. You've got events happening. You've got the ability to be able to connect in and have a network and a community really easily, then it's easy to slot in to that like it's 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 an exciting time it's not until maybe a couple of years later that you start to see the cracks in it you start to see that it's pretty hollow and some of the motivations for you being there aren't necessarily something that is pure always that's for sure so it i guess it is is something that that can draw you in and look there's a lot of people that come to this scene and stay in it we both still know people that have stayed in it. Um, but I would say that the vast majority of the people have longevity in this scene is people that were born into it because they don't know any different. They don't have a reference point to look back at and compare their experiences. People who come into it at a later age, like both of us, I think you do have that comparison and you can see a bit of the craziness a, a bit easier. I'll take a pause though about how I came in and hand over to Troy and he can talk about how he came in. Maybe we'll step out as we go along some of the, the stuff that happened within there and then our our journeys out and then where we are now in Troy. So my backstory, actually, I wasn't raised religious either, although I think I was primed a bit, you know, like when you think about things like the satanic panic, which happened in the, the 70s and 80s and the idea of, you know, playing your records backwards and the devils in the music and all that kind of thing. Then there was also, you know, the movies like The Omen and The Exorcist. They really primed me to be quite fearful of the devil and, you know, believing that there was a God and supernatural and all that. And 
when I was about 13, a friend of mine invited me along to a camp with a, in, in a church called the Revival Centre, which were another Pentecostal group. And I went along on that camp. And so in, you know, true, I don't know, high control group fashion, I was whisked away for a week. They were telling me all about speaking in tongues and that God's going to change my life. And, and so I did. I, I got involved with them. Um, I remember going down to a pastor's cabin, getting on my knees and saying hallelujah over and over, very much coached very much told, you know, say this again and again and again until your tongue changes. So there was nothing mystical and magical about it. It was coached. Uh, they walked me through the process. And so, yeah, so I started speaking in tongues and then that was it, you know, to me that there was, well, there it is, there's the proof. And obviously it's not really proof of anything, but when you're 13 years old, oh, okay. But I was love bombed, very much love bombed. And, um, you know, I don't think anyone was intentionally saying we're going to love bomb. It's just, that's what you do to the new people. You make them feel welcome and part of all this. So yeah, got involved with them. And then they were really extreme. They were very much like, I don't know if you've heard of the uh, United Pentecostal Church, but tongues was initial evidence for salvation. You must be a member of only our church. Then when I got to about 17 and I was looking at the way they were acting, I orchestrated some scenarios, situations to get myself out because you couldn't just leave. And uh, I won't go too deep other than to say that I do tell that story on our podcast. But then it was a few years after that, that the indoctrination was there and sorry to to use that term, um, but it was <laughs> there, and, uh-huh. and yeah, it was really there, and I was it was deep within me, and I was still quite fearful of hell and what's going to happen to me when I die, and and so a friend of mine invited me along to the Assemblies of God, and I got involved with the Assemblies of God, and they were certainly a step away from that sort of control, but it was still there, and by that stage, I think I'd been quite conditioned, and it was already built within me to follow the processes and to follow the the belief system and to follow the authoritarianism. And so I slot in, slotted in quite quickly and then became a part of that. And I was, I was in there from, you know, if you count from when I joined the Revival Centre until when I left the Assemblies of God, that was age 13 till about 29. So they were really formative years and really important years. And at the same time, you know, it was more than half my life up to that stage. Yeah, so that's, that's my journey. Wow. Yes, there is uh, going to be a lot of crossover in terms of you know what the draw was, what what is certainly appealing, what you get when you first get involved in the high of it, the Insta community, and a sense of belonging, probably purpose, but the formula to follow. And yeah, there is something very calming about that. And I think sometimes it's so calming to receive the formula that you don't question the formula. It just feels so good that you have one and that you know how to keep yourself safe according to how they decide that you're going to keep yourself safe. How were you encouraged or told to see the world outside of these groups, uh, people who didn't believe this way and what was going to happen to them? You're right about that formula, but the formula when you come in is simplified and the formula is believe in Jesus Christ, believe that he died for your sins, say that out loud and everything will be okay. You no longer then have to go to hell because you're saved by grace. The formula becomes a lot more complicated as you go along. 
and there, there's a lot more things added to it. And the recipe gets very complex because you then find out about different angles of theology and different things you have to believe. And as Troy said, you know, spoke about tongues before. Tongues was definitely introduced to me early as well. It was never said that you had to speak in tongues to be saved and go to heaven. But the reality is you were looked down on if you did not speak in tongues, if you weren't part of that group. Things that would add on also was definitely you got steered away from being part of what what is called the world. And the world is anything outside of church. And, and it's not just church. It has to be the brand, the type of church. It's Pentecostalism. It's evangelicalism. Because even the Catholic Church, uh, the Uniting Church here in Australia, the Baptists, they were seen as lesser. It was inferred that they certainly weren't as spiritual. Some of them weren't spiritual at all. They'd moved so far away from God. So the complexities, I guess, kept getting added on, as did your requirements to be more and more involved. They would rack and stack your week. So you really couldn't have time to mix with the world and get affected by the sin of the world out there you know stay protected within your bubble uh, you would go to a bible study group during the week on a friday evening you might be involved in street witnessing which is going out basically into the streets and harassing people and telling them about jesus and why they're probably going to burn and go to hell saturday evenings would be a youth group and then sundays would be church twice if you went once on a sunday you were you were uh, termed what they call a spiritual once um and that meant that <laughs> you just went once and some of this was tongue-in-cheek type thing the way it came across but it was very serious so you had to go Saturday, uh, Sunday morning you had to go Sunday evening and what was buffered in between was Sunday generally after a morning service you'd go out with friends from the church uh, Sunday evening after church you would go out with friends from the church so you're slowly drawn away from family, from friends that aren't inside the church. During the week, if you then get involved in leadership, for example, there'll be leadership meetings. There'll be different meetings that you might be involved in that are different Bible studies of that leadership group or a prayer group. So all of a sudden you've got five, maybe six evenings a week, as well as your days on a Sunday and just Saturday um, afternoon and evening in a youth group suddenly filled up. So the formulas become very, very complex. And within that, you've got a lot of things that you are required to do. It becomes very high control, very, very high control. And when you start to pull away from that, there's a lot of accusations that you've fallen away, what they call backslidden, which means you know, you've fallen away from God. So I started to see the cracks. That's, for me, where the cracks were, these requirements. I, I mean, I always maintained friends outside of church, but it became increasingly difficult. And when I saw that, and when I saw that I was so drawn away from them, they made comments about it. And I was like, oh, no, dude, you know, I'm doing bigger work here. I've got more important things to do. So it was those, and it slowly over a couple of years, because on top of that too, both Troy and I were involved with, it wasn't really an arm of the church, but it was certainly involved with it, which was a, a bit more of a welfare charity arm working with homeless young people. So there was that as well. So for me, the first bit was extricating myself from that. And that's when the accusation started to come that I wasn't perhaps as spiritual because I wasn't doing the stuff for them. I just want to resonate with what Brian was saying, that it 
stops being about just simply believing in Jesus. I mean, that's the message, isn't it? It was, you know, just come to Christ. But it certainly does become that much more complex. Look, I I can, again, resonate with everything he's saying about all the time that we spent. We were in the same church. It was exactly the same experience. But the other thing I think was this us and them mentality, that the people that are outside the church are them and the people that are inside the church are us. And the closer you were to our brand of Christianity, the more us you were. But even still, and I think it's something that we sort of reflected on as we were building the podcast more recently, even people that were in other arms of or other parts of our denomination, we actually did see them as being a little bit less than what we were doing in what we call Great Big AOG. We don't actually say the real name of the church because we, we don't want to get sued. But um, it, it we were the the mother church. We were we were the Rome of you know the Vatican of of that denomination in Australia, or at least we thought we were. And everybody else was a little bit less. So that sort of dualism, that sort of idea of us and them, while it certainly was true of people outside the church, it was also true of people inside the church. There were there were levels, there were gradations of of how we saw people. And so what that did is it drove you further and further to the center, which is again what Brian was saying. It pushed you. You have to be more committed. You have to be, uh, you know, stronger in your faith. You have to be more pure, more true, more part of this. And so I felt definitely driven to that center place. And so that means taking on leadership, going to Bible college, eventually, you know, wanting to become a pastor and a leader in this. And it was all this, this drive. And there was never a sense of, you know, when you said there's very calming coming in, certainly initially. But then after that, it was this constant sense of not doing enough, not measuring up. There was no simplicity to the message is what I'm saying. It was very complex and it was very much about being a part of the the core and it was very much about striving. And, and so I think there's a lot of people that suffer a lot of existential anxiety in that space that probably never admit it, but it's definitely there. I think also I'd like to go to your question about how people were seen outside. They were seen as souls to save. Like they were no longer family members, friends, acquaintances, workmates. They were definitely souls to save. And and I think that's why multi-level marketing are so incredibly successful within churches and particularly within evangelical and Pentecostal churches because they've already got that framework for people aren't necessarily friends, acquaintances, whatever, they're they're people to be saved. So when you've already got that, then it's easy to translate that into everyone else's customers. So it's, you know, I I think that there's a real, it's a hotbed of multi-level marketing within, within those large churches as a result of that. Perfect. And and another thing I'll say, Brian, is that if they were hostile, though, then they are the enemy, and they are perhaps even demon possessed. Um, you know, tools of the devil, etc. And then that's when we would start to use spiritual warfare and pray against them and all this kind of thing as well. So there really was. You're right. Outside there was there was definitely a them, but there was two kinds of them. There was the fish, and there was the demons. And if someone was hostile, you would you know eventually cut them off but you would do your best to argue with them and put them in their place and humiliate them or whatever it is that you were doing to turn them into a fish to then bring them in. Right. I mean, I I have the experience just personally having a mezuzah, which is uh, something that sometimes Jewish people have on the outside of their home uh, with a little prayer inside. And so it makes me a target all the time for everyone who wants to save me, needs to save me. And 
it does get to be tiresome. It does feel insulting. You know, where is this sense that somehow I need what you're selling? And so I think when you're a teenager, you want to have that drive. First of all, it's very natural to have a drive and you want to feel important and you want to feel like you're doing, you know, good work. And it probably does feel very nice to feel like you can play this pivotal role in people's salvation. It's, it can be very empowering. No question. I think, you know, Troy, when you were talking about the push, yeah, I think at the beginning, it's, it's so nice and love bombing and kind of this kind, you're part of something special kind of feeling. And then, then you can never do enough. And then you have to really watch yourself because you have to do it perfectly or in sort of a superhuman way. I'm wondering along the way, if you started to notice about the leadership, if they were doing as much as the other people, or if they weren't, or if they were living in perfect ways, were they people to emulate? Or did people start to notice potentially this sort of conflict where they weren't seeing the leadership doing as much as they were doing or caring at times as much as they were caring? I think there was a lot of veneer. Um, so everything looked great on the surface. And in terms of them doing as much, uh, certainly not because part of your growth as a, as a Christian, as a Pentecostal, as an evangelical was to serve your leadership serve their vision. And that was very, very strong. So these people certainly didn't do as much in terms of the heavy lifting because everyone else was serving them. Generally in, in our congregation, people lived in lovely houses, what we would refer to as McMansions. They all lived in the similar suburb, lovely houses. Everything looked perfect, really. It was very Stepford Wives as well. The, the women generally of the pastors didn't work. They were there to, to serve their husbands, serve the vision. So there was generally a codependence there. So I, I definitely think that it wasn't all perfect. And underneath the surface, you would definitely see that, particularly as you came closer to the leadership. You would see your larger um, Jim Baker's swaggart, um, you know, the fall of that. And that all happened around or just before we came in. There was also some bigger Australian names that fell away. Generally, they were just seen because they fell away from Jesus. Like it's because they they let the devil in and something happened there that so it was it wasn't there wasn't any self-reflection that hey maybe we're heading to a, a similar place that that wasn't there but lives weren't perfect and you scratch that veneer away and you would see below the surface that there was something wrong i think the other thing too is that we very much served the leaders in the sense of doing going above and beyond and there was kind of a there was kind of an ass kiss to some point, like they're the leaders. And if I want to be a leader and selected for leadership, well, then I need to be in relationship. Um, and they would call it discipleship and you'd come alongside the leader, but people were doing things and they were really gender defined roles as well. Like you'd go over to the leader's house and, you know, mow their lawn or, you know, help them fix up their house or the girls would, um, you know, the young women would uh, babysit or, or even clean the pastor's house, you know, et cetera. And so there was a lot of that kind of thing. And so there was, there was this definite, they would say, we're just people, we're just people like you, you know, called by God, but there was definitely this two stage. And we reflected on this in our podcast, didn't we, Brian, where we're like, what's cleaning the house got to do with the kingdom of God? What's painting the fence got to do, you know, and that's more karate kid, isn't it? Than, than, um, 
than Jesus. But yeah, I mean, we we would really we would really kiss their asses and we would really do these things for them. But the other thing was their ability to speak into our lives and tell us. So in Pentecostalism is the idea that you get anointed by God and you may deliver words from God, literally. And it becomes almost spiritualist, you know, the idea that God, for want of a better word, possesses you or anoints you and then starts to speak to people, gives you this this information, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, word of prophecy. And so if they would take that stance with you, they had enormous amounts of power to speak into your life. But then as time went on, as I got into leadership and started moving into the higher levels of of the assemblies of God, I started to see this contradiction and the hypocrisy and the, uh, the bureaucracy and the institutionalization of the whole thing. It was stuff that was being done. It was became less about the kingdom of God and more about the assemblies of God and the name and the brand. And I really got quite miffed and quite upset by that. And I stepped away from leadership. And then, then the, my whole world fell apart after that because I had failed. You know, they, they didn't let me go. I cho- chose to leave. That is just the leadership, not even the church. And then that was it. You know, I started to get uh, branded as rebellious and and all the things that you'd expect from a high control group, I suppose. With a lot of people, when they do move up the ranks in a lot of these organizations, they pull back the curtain on the wizard, you know, and they start to see who it is and that it's not someone really anointed by anyone, but really someone who's very fallible and human and, and has traits that are actually not ones that you want to see uh, and can be quite disappointing. And by that point, from what I've heard from a lot of people talking about, you sort of learned to gaslight yourself that if you think about them in a way that's less than, then there's something wrong with you or that's punishable by God. And so I think a lot of people spend a lot of time battling it out in their minds before they feel like they can have a clear thought about what's happening and then take action steps based on that thought. What are your thoughts about that? I completely agree. I mean, your thinking doesn't become your own thinking because the minute it becomes your own thinking, it's a rebellious thought or it's a thought against God. Or as Troy said before, these people can speak directly into your life. And there is no more powerful thing for a pastor or a leader to bring to you that the words that God has given me a word for you and the authority that that had, and that could be God has given me a word for you that you need to do X, Y, and Z. God has given me a word that says you need to step away from this, which was generally a control to step into something that they wanted you to step into. Very, very powerful. And over time, that erodes your sense of self, that erodes your ability of critical thinking. I was reasonably fortunate that I maintained a level of critical thinking throughout my period in, and I was in Pentecostalism for um, six or seven years, so it wasn't an enormous part of my life, but it was a very impactful part of my life. However, there was probably a two-year period where I dropped any of that critical thinking because for me to be able to progress and succeed as a Christian, I needed to surrender myself to God, which essentially was a surrendering myself to the leadership who would guide me, who would speak into my life, who would influence what I said, what I did, and when and how I did it. Mm-hmm. When I was in the Revival Centre, I was quite young. I was in the Revival Centre from 13 to 17. One of the things about the Revival Centre was the leader, and as I said, these were quite an extreme group as compared to the Assemblies of God, which is extreme in themselves, but the leader was extremely wealthy. 
he had a lot of money and and it was he lived in a and not a McMansion he lived in a mansion and he drove a, a high-end European car and the thing that used to go around the church was oh yeah Pastor Lloyd he had a lot of money before he joined the church and so that became the the story that went around you know oh yeah he was quite wealthy before he joined the church and later on in doing my research on the group and speaking to his son who was estranged no that wasn't true my father was never wealthy that was all church money so what happens is you start to believe the the alternate stories you know you start to believe the alternate history that's that's sent around in the group and i think in that same way even in the assemblies of god what you do well what i did was when i was seeing these inconsistencies i would believe whatever line was put out now i'm not accusing them of of taking large amounts of money from people or anything like that but there were inconsistencies in the way that they were treating people or even sometimes i can remember one pastor telling one thing to me and then telling another thing to to a friend of mine and when we compared stories we realized that we were actually being manipulated in my life now i would say well that's ridiculous i'm done and and i would walk but not then you stay right because you've invested so much into this into this life and into this church and let alone you genuinely believe it you know you're you're going to what we call altar calls at the end of a sermon, you know, rededicate your life to the Lord or make a deeper commitment to the Lord. So there's this intense emotional um, reconnection almost on a weekly basis, wasn't there, Brian, especially at youth. And we would go and we would recommit our lives to the Lord. And so all those inconsistencies, all those things that were wrong that you see, you would just clean the slate and start again and you just put them aside. And it's not until you leave years later that you go, oh, there was this and there was this and there was that and there was that. And what Josie McSkimming, um, who's a, a clinical therapist here in Australia, she calls sites of injury. These little things where you just, you know, well, sometimes they're big, but they build up over time. And then eventually you just go, I can't do this anymore. And so in answer to your second part of your question, they just built up to the point where it wasn't even cognitive. I was just starting to get depressed and I was you know, starting to turn it inwardly and I was starting to really hurt and it wasn't working. And then there were other people in my life who were in a sort of similar boat and you find each other and you start talking and then you get branded as being part of the rebellious crew, et cetera. I mean, it's just, it never ends until eventually you just say, I can't do this anymore and you leave. And some people have breakdowns, some people don't, but it can be quite quite taxing and quite soul destroying. I think that whole process, you know, there's this idea in business about the sunk cost fallacy, right? I've bought into this and not only have I bought into it, spent so much, but I have talked about it with other people. I have to somehow follow in line with the very strong messaging that I gave, you know, shouting from the hilltops about how this is the right way and the only way. And so how do you do that? How do you take those next steps? Well, and, and it depends who you are and how deeply you're involved too. I mean, both Troy and I were on a career trajectory to be, you know, full-time ministers. So that was definitely something. They latch on to people who've got charisma. Anyone who's got those leadership qualities, it doesn't matter necessarily if you're a good Christian, as long as you're looking like a good Christian, that's fine. But if you're charismatic, you'll be on a trajectory to be, I mean, Troy was a lot closer than I was. He, you know, he had his credentials submitted and was ready to be a minister and before things fell apart. For me, I'd invested a lot in it. And I thought, okay, this is my life. I'm going to be a minister. I'm going to be full-time in this space. So you're so deeply invested. You don't want to believe anything that is 
uh, going to lead you away from it. So quite often it does take those traumatic experiences or it takes a, a bit of a light bulb moment and they come in different ways. For me, it came, and I don't know if you're familiar with the Toronto blessing from the 90s, you know, it was a huge global movement where there was lunacy happening. You know, there was people running around clucking like chickens, barking like dogs, roaring like lions, all for Jesus. And, you know, <laughs> there was gold, reports of gold dust falling from the air when people were praying. There was gold teeth appearing in people's mouths. and Feathers from angels' wings were falling from the sky. Yes, that's right. So that happened in Australia as well. For me, that was the breaking point. And if you want to hear more about this, there's an awesome podcast that comes out of, of Canada, um, Heaven Bent by Tara Jean Stevens, and she does a whole season, about six or seven episodes, on the Toronto Blessing. Now, this was uh, coming up to late 90s, maybe 97, 98, where I went, this is nuts. This is absolutely crazy. But I had invested so much in the brand of Christianity, I didn't want to give that up. So all I did was got out of the lunacy into a quieter brand, a, a, a Baptist that was, you know, it's another story which I won't go into, but they were a lot kinder, a lot gentler. They didn't buy into the the hype and the Toronto blessing and the, the madness that surrounded that. It was a world within itself. And, you know, the, the Pentecostals would say it was a world within itself because God was moving in them and using them as a movement. Um, they wouldn't be employing critical thinking, that's for sure. But by then, I'd become an observer and not a participant. So I'd already started to shift out and I'd had a conversation. I'd left full-time study to become a minister. I'd left that. Um, I was starting to transition away from the space. And when I did, I mean, I guess for lack of a better word, offer my resignation and say, I'm leaving. I was told, I'd called a pew warmer. I'd be a lesser self than I had the potential to be. That if I moved away from that, I would never realize what God had in store for me because I'm giving it all up. Not because I'm leaving God, because I was quite clear on that. I'm going to another denomination to express my faith. It was because I was leaving that denomination, the Assemblies of God. Mm -hmm. oh, interesting. And how about for you, Trey? It was similar, but I think my leaving was more dramatic. I think I got you know, my fill of, of the Assemblies of God and just went, that's it, I'm done. And so I got involved in the Toronto Blessing, as we all did back then, all Pentecostals did, but I went to other churches and started experiencing it there and started mixing with people from other churches and different denominations. And so I made the decision, to me, leaving the Assemblies of God wasn't leaving my salvation. I'd already left the revival centres years before. I knew that I, I could do this. And so I didn't necessarily have any huge conversations with anyone about, you know, in the leadership like Brian did and, you know, got the accusations. I just left and I just decided this is it. I'm, I'm done. And I had not quite finished Bible college. So I had to hang, hang around the Assemblies of God Bible College and finish that. But I moved off into, into other groups. I moved off into the Baptist church for a little while and then into the Churches of Christ here in Australia. And I just change channels really. Um, and it was, and you know, like Brian was saying, it was a lot more mellow. It was a lot less, a lot less cultic, a lot less controlling, but at the same time, it was, it was just another flavor of the same kind of thing. Right. Okay. 
Troy, you mentioned about that some people had nervous breakdowns and some people didn't. I know sometimes that has to do with people's wiring. I know sometimes it has to do with the experiences they had while in or, or just their emotional selves and what their life was like outside. But I'm wondering just for the listeners, what is something that was needed, I think, for both of you so that you were kept afloat. I mean, it sounds like you were able to find another community, which is very helpful. Was there something else? And I say this with people listening who are kind of in the midst of or considering making a transition like this and who are worried about what's going to happen to them emotionally and socially if they do. So what is needed during that transition out? At the risk of sounding, you know, totally contradictory here, there was still my faith at that point. And, you know, in the people that we connect with now, there's a lot of people that sort of take on a newer brand of Christianity or a different brand of Christianity. Brian and I both walked away. We, we don't have anything. But certainly that wasn't the first step. The first step was stepping out into, like you just said, you know, still having that community and still having that in place. But there was a lot of the unpacking of the Bible and unpacking of the theology. And so there was a lot of, I did a lot of reading and understanding that, that there are alternate truths, that there are different ways of interpreting this. And so that released me from some of the power. But I also started to read a lot of books on control. I started to read a lot of books on cults. I started to read a lot of books on, you know, undue influence and that kind of thing. And so I saw a lot of that as well. And it was funny because I was reading those books about the Revival Center, not about the Assemblies of God. But as I was reading them, I was like, oh, this is that. This is where I am now, you know. And I can remember consciously thinking, oh, I can't deal with this, you know, and sort of putting it aside. Whereas now I would say, no, no, Troy, don't, don't put that aside. Unpack that now, you know. Um, but it was a very gradual process. And I think, you know, one of the things that Brian and I face in, in what we do with the podcast is we get these sort of hyper atheists who want us to be saying to everyone, read Dawkins, you know, read Hitchens, read, read this sort of atheist stuff and just be done with it all. I don't think people can do that. I think a lot of people need to take these gradual steps. But that being said, you know, talking about a breakdown, I feel that I did have a, a, a kind of breakdown some years later. So I'd left the Assemblies of God. I was in, in another church and going well for a few years. And then one day it all just stopped making sense and it all fell down around me. And, and it wasn't a conscious decision that I made. But again, it was a process and it was a slow process and it was step by step. And I think that's really important for people that, that are trying to reach their friends and family and, you know, bring them out of destructive groups, or even if you're, you know, leaving one now, I mean, the agony that I was in when I first left and I was, you know, I mean, left Christianity completely and was reading websites on walking away and walking away from fundamentalism, et cetera, the agony of making a wrong decision. You know, if I could go back to myself there now, I'd put my arm around myself and say, see, it's going to be okay. But you, it's really hard to see that at the time. I understand that, but it is going to be okay. It really is. Mm, that's really good to hear. Yeah. Brian, go ahead. It is a long process and it's, it's a difficult process and dependent on how deep you are into it, depending on obviously your personality, who you are, how you process things. For me, definitely having people around, people that I trusted, people that I felt I could be me was very important. But I think also one thing I did was I channeled the energy and some of the reason that I wanted to be so deeply into Christianity, into, you know, future career. 
as well. So, you know, unconsciously, I just wanted to help people. I just wanted to be there to drive change. And I probably didn't believe in that change deeply enough. When I, I look back, I really wasn't a great Christian. I wasn't, I, I, I'm not sure I believed as deeply as I should have. And I definitely faked it till I made it um, many, many times. But I, I ended up changing careers. This is over 25 years ago, but becoming a social worker. So I went to university, did a social work degree, and really employed the social justice lens across life. And it helped me. It actually helped me deconvert. Going to university helped me deconvert because it gave me a deeper critical thinking. So as you know, as much as Troy is an avid studier and could outstudy me any day, but he also is a you know, he's a ferocious reader. And, you know, for, for Troy, it was able to to be able to read and, and unpack this stuff. For me, I was, it had to be experiential. So going to university and studying it, it helped me unpack that. It helped me understand the broader world. It helped me form a framework which replaced the toxic framework that I'd built up in my time as a, a fundamentalist. So different things for different people, but above all, and we've both said this one of the things we missed deeply about being involved in a church was the sense of community, the belonging, the support. Get that as you move out, even plan it, pre-plan it as you're moving out to transition to a community which can help you, can understand you and can, I guess, be kind to you as you you might flip and flop about as you try and process it and lead yourself out of it. Mm, that's a beautiful thought. I, it's something I talk to people about who, who are leaving controlling relationships where they've been so isolated and the rest of the world has been really taken away from them. So uh, sometimes encourage them to reconnect, even though they think they've burned their bridges because they've yelled at the person because their spouse or partner has told them that they needed to. Those people usually are still waiting and hoping for them to come out and will welcome them with open arms. Uh, they might need a few explanations about what happened, yeah, but still they're there. And it's good to know. It's good for people to know there are other communities. So the last question is about the podcast, about when you got it started and what it's been like. And and I'm sure you've gotten a lot of feedback, um, but there can also be a nervousness about, uh, you know, are you going to be persuading people to believe a certain way or not believe a certain way? And how do you sort of leave it? Because uh, I hear from both of you that you don't want to be telling people what to do. You know, you want to give people an opportunity to express things or find sort of a way that they can guide themselves safely in whatever direction. So tell me a little bit about the podcast, the idea for it and how it's been for you. Well, I'll let you talk about the idea for it because it, it was one that came to Troy in a vision from God. Yeah, it sounds a bit, it sounds a bit mystical. But I was actually meditating um, one day and the idea came to me. Sorry, I know that sounds a bit mystical, but it was, it was a cool moment. And I just thought, you know, I, I, I'm hearing a lot of these sort of deconstruction, post-Christian, ex-evangelical sort of podcasts around and and I'd really like to be involved in the conversation. And so Brian and I used to sit around and talk talk about our experiences. And so I rang him up and I said, do you want to do a podcast? And little did I know he just has the voice for radio. I mean, he's got this, I, I, I tell you the truth, people contact me and go, who's that? Who's, who's this other? Because he's just got this really, you know, deep resonance in his voice. But nevertheless, he, he, he was perfect for the, for the gig. And so we just started, started talking really. And, you know, as Brian says, we just hit record and, and off we went. But it's, it's developed. 
it's grown. You know, it's, if you look at our, listen to our first episodes, it's kind of embarrassing now. It was the production quality was so low, but the intention was there from the start. But nevertheless, it's grown to the point where we're on a journey as well. And people that are listening to us are coming along on this journey. But we want to make it really clear that we're not saying to people, here's the direction you must go. Certainly, here's a trajectory. Let's walk away from where we were. But you can be a born again Christian if you want to be, but a more healthy version. You can be, you know, a Buddhist, you can be Jewish, you can be whatever it is that you want to be. You can be an, a, an atheist, you can be an agnostic, you can not even know. But we're really careful not to put ourselves in the place of saying, okay, we know. We are the new gurus. We are the new leaders. Because that's what happened to me when I left the Revival Center and joined the Assemblies of God. And look where that got me. It just got me into years of more of the same. And so we're very, very careful about that. And, and it's interesting because in that sense, we get atheists that say we're not atheists enough. And then we get spiritual people that say we're not spiritual enough. And I even had someone recently remove one of our posts from the ex-Christian Reddit board because they said I wasn't ex-Christian enough. And, and I was like, and I'm trying to argue with them. And I'm like, hold on, I used to be a Christian. Now I'm not, I'm an ex-Christian, you know? And so we're just, and, and to me, I, actually that says we're doing something right because we're somewhere in the middle of all this mess. And I think that's where, now, now I'm showing my, you know, my Buddhist leanings, but I think that that middle way is actually where we should be, that letting people be where they are and helping them and, you know, resonate with our stories, but also our stories validate their own story. So that's, that's our intention. But also I'll throw this in. We are trying really hard to hold these groups to account because they still exist and a lot of them haven't changed and they're still doing the same things that they used to do, whether they're Australian Christian churches, Hillsong, Apostolic Church, Christian Revival Crusade, whatever you want to call them, this Australian Pentecostal scene, there's a lot of great people in there, but they need to be held to account. And they need to they need to be pushing themselves toward reform and they need to change a lot of the things that they're doing. We're not asking them to shut up shop. We're not asking them to close down, but we are asking them to take a good look at themselves and look at the damage that's being done and let's see some change. Okay. Wonderful. Wonderful. Go ahead, Brian. I was going to say, and one thing that we're very intentional about as well is not coming in toxically. So we don't want to come in and bring people in to another space where they're going to get hurt, they're going to get burned. We're really trying to create a healing space and somewhere that people can connect with other people who have similar experiences. Because I think there's one thing that is in common with everybody who is, well, not everybody, but most people listening, listening to our podcast and who are part of the Facebook community, is that if you say some things out loud, you just hear yourself saying madness some of the things that you believe there's some of the things that you were involved in those things that were foundational in your life so having somebody who you can talk about that and they don't go you are crazy is and is an amazing thing and it's a really helpful thing but also can people connect each other with the different ways that they've found healing different ways that they've found to be able to reconstruct their lives in a healthy way, in a way that employs critical thinking, in a way that doesn't seek to please others all the time for fear of going to hell or fear of displeasing people in general. So we've we've really been intentional about the podcast and offering help to people, offering them a, a way forward and to not ignore all the stuff that happened back then, but to process it and work out what was the good stuff. 
there is always good in everything. How can we actually filter that and bring it forward and leverage that to make ourselves more healthier, more holistic? It's so nice that you are kind of meeting people where they are, so to speak, and that you don't have an agenda except to offer a way to do that, whatever that is, in a healthier way and what to watch out for. And I think it's also very important, Troy, that you are this voracious reader and read about cults and undue influence, et cetera. And for you, Brian, that you went to school and social work school and learning about it because so often people will say, yeah, I was in this thing and I don't know how to explain it though. I know what I experienced, but I don't have the words for it. And people are needing for me to kind of be an expert about cults and uh, manipulation. And I can just say what happened to me. So I think broadening it and understanding it in a bigger way is very helpful for yourself and, and also clearly for your listeners. Thank you so much for your time, for the work that you do, for your collaboration. I mean, it's really created something beautiful. And uh, I look forward to hopefully talking to you again at some point soon. Well, we're going to talk very soon in our yes. crossover episode, aren't we, uh-huh. Rachel, where we make it all about you and uh-huh. we want to hear about you. So we're, we're very much looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. Yeah, definitely. It's good. been good. Good, good. Awesome. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Thanks for having us. Of course. One more thing before you go. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Troy. I love your show and I loved having you on mine. I really look forward to having people hear our way of talking to each other on each other's shows and covering some of the same, but also different subjects. When you're raised in environments or when you're brought into environments that offer you this prepackaged way of being, as Brian talked about, and that Troy talked about this sort of way of pushing you towards what was supposed to somehow be this easy formula at first, but then got more and more complicated. And that there was this requirement for purity. All of these things play with your head. When you are given a prepackaged way that is offered to you as an absolute, and you will be saved, you will be happy, you will be safe, then of course, of course, there's an appeal to it. It's undeniable. And It also gives you a way to live your life without having a question. Saves you from existential angst. And there are a lot of people who get involved in a lot of things, so they never have to feel existential angst. The questions about meaning and life and death. And so there's so much enthusiasm that gets conjured up when someone says, here, they just hand you this formula. And you can feel so good and you feel so safe within that. And especially if it's an easy formula to follow, believe this, don't believe that. Do this, don't do that. Then it feels really good. And you think, where has this been my whole life? But the problem is, there is no one formula for life. And that's a very frustrating thing for people to realize when that's what they've been in search of or that's what they've been promised. 
It doesn't mean there isn't a formula. It just means there are many. And many of them are equally valid. But the formula that works the best, I think, is the one that's personalized to you. When these groups give you the formula to follow, it's not personalized to you. You are the square peg that has to fit into the round hole. And there's always going to be tension. It's never going to be quite the perfect fit. And then what do you do? When you start noticing that things are getting more complicated and things are getting harder to follow, and as you're having more desires in your life and you're wanting to go in a different direction, how do you leave this thing that has been presented as the perfect answer? One of the things that was talked about that I think is very important is this idea of not only the idea of something being prepackaged that you're presented with, but another pre-word that was offered at the end to pre-plan to get support before you leave. This is very important. So while I'm not saying to people that they need to leave everything, you only have to leave if you are feeling like it's interfering in your life rather than providing you what you want. Again, back to this adage that I have, which is it's only a problem if it's a problem. And so for some people, their involvement in churches and other things works perfectly fine for them. But if it doesn't work for you, then pre-plan to get support before you leave. And know that there are many people who are out there who are looking for connection with other people who have also left that group and others. You never have to feel alone. There is an organization that I helped to create called Stronger After, which is for people coming out of restrictive environments and cults and systems of control. It's now run by some wonderful people, and please check it out. There are organizations to help you. There's therapy. There are support groups. There's my support group. There are places to go. Find out what they are. I know it's going to be hard for you, though, because you're not allowed to go on the internet and you're not allowed to do your research and you're not allowed to do worldly things, in quotes. But do them anyway, if you can. And if you feel that you can't, ask someone to do it for you. Collect your resources. Part of what gives you wisdom in the world, as is said by a lot of sociologists, is knowing your resources. Knowing that if something takes a village, Who's part of your village? Who can you lean on? Who can you talk to? There are always people out there. And while everyone's experience in a cult in anything is going to be slightly different because it's yours, there's enough crossover, enough understanding, enough overlap where you won't feel alone. So if there's any way that I can help you pre-plan, if you're thinking about leaving something and you want to know what your resources are, be in touch. It was a pleasure to speak with Brian and with Troy. And I look forward to having you hear me on their show as well. And I hope to talk to them again soon. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.